Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I have a brilliant conversation with one of Australia's greatest sprint swimmers and now world leading swim coach, podcast host, and just all round great guy, Brett Hawke. And in this episode, Brett describes the importance of training and living with intention and how intention could be the difference between Olympic champion and just being average. And Brett discusses how he struggled with his confidence during his own swimming career and felt like an imposter in the waiting room before the championship finals. And he took the lessons he learned from missing the 96 Olympics and and what he learned about himself as an athlete. And it's just helped hundreds of swimmers become champions. Simply a wonderful conversation with a great athlete and coach. Now, a bit of housekeeping before we go on. Firstly, thank you all so much for listening. And If you're enjoying the show, I'd really encourage you and would appreciate you to share it with your friends and family. Um, And please keep the feedback coming. I really do this show for you. So tell me what you want and I can help you out and make it a better show. So I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. I want to give a huge shout out to Athletic Greens for supporting the show and for just being there every day for me. Athletic Greens is now very much a part of my daily routine. Just such a simple way to get a delicious blend of 75 superfoods, vitamins and minerals and probiotics and so much more. I really encourage you to invest in yourself. Invest in your own health for your performance optimization today and for your longevity. Sign up and have it delivered straight to your door. It's just so simple, tastes great and does what I really need for my health. I've also been doubling down on Athletic Greens Vitamin D. Just a huge proportion of the population are vitamin D deficient, myself included. And I focus heavily on getting out in the sun throughout the day, but when I can't, I religiously supplement with vitamin D. And right now, if you order, they'll give you a year's supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs. Athletic Greens is just so much more than a multivitamin and multimineral. It takes to the next level adding in a daily dose of superfoods, probiotics, greens blends, and so much more to support your gut health, your energy, your immunity, and stress. So please do yourself a favor and sign up. It also makes a great gift for a family member or a friend. So sign up now and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Now, you've probably heard me on many of the episodes discussing hyper-ice products with my guests, whether it's sitting in the Normatec compression boots, which I've been doing after solid workouts for, well, 10 plus years, or it's the Hypervolt percussion massage devices that I use daily to warm me up before going to the gym, or the vibrating massage roller, which I use before every run. All of the hyperice gear is just so easy to use and just keeps me going. My goal is to keep moving, keep physically fit for many, many years to come. And using the hyperice products are just helping me do just that. So simple, quick and easy to look after my body at home. And I've just started using the new Hypervolt Go. It's surprisingly powerful and whisper quiet and ultra lightweight at only one and a half pounds or 680 grams. And it's 30% smaller than the Hypervolt. The Go is ready to provide relief wherever you roam with three speed settings, two interchangeable headset attachments, 18 volt rechargeable lithium iron battery. And like I said, lightweight, easy to use, one and a half pounds, 680 grams. And it's TSA approved for carry on. So get 10% off at all Hyperice products using code GREG10 at checkout. Go to hyperice.com. That's H Y P. 
E-R-I-C-E.com and use code GREG10 at checkout. Are you someone who uses bike computers while you ride and or wearable devices while you run? Would you like to have it while you swim? For years, I've been using bike computers and wearables on the run to gain feedback to help efficiency and performance. And now I can have it while I swim with the Form Smart Swim Goggles. Honestly, these goggles blew my mind. I put the Form Smart Swim Goggles on and immediately could see the metrics on the screen. I love playing with my stroke rate and seeing how it affects my pace, just as I did on the bike for most of my career, always trying to find the best cadence to generate power and create the most speed. With Form Smart Swim Goggles, you can see all the metrics while you're swimming. Distance, pace, stroke rate, and heart rate. They have it all. The swim data is displayed on the goggle lens, and you can customize the display to see the metrics you want to see. The goggles track it all and are automated. You start them at the beginning of your swim, and you don't have to press any buttons in between. They automatically track everything. The goggles connect to the Form Swim app on your smartphone, and there you can review all the details of your swims and see what other swimmers are up to in the Form community as well. Battery life is incredible. One hour charge gives you 16 hours of swim time. So go to formswim.com forward slash Greg. That's formswim.com forward slash Greg and get $15 off, or you can use code Greg15 at checkout. All right, today's guest is one of the rare few that not only reached the top of the world as an athlete in his chosen sport of sprint swimming, he also coached numerous athletes to do the same. He's an Australian Olympian at the 2000 Sydney and 2004 Athens Olympic Games, and he's a five-time Australian national champion and former Australian record holder in the 50-metre freestyle with a 22.07 seconds. And he finished his career with seven international medals. Prior to his Olympic career, he went to Auburn University to swim, and there he earned 17 All-American honours and was a nine-time NCAA individual champion and helped Auburn win two national team championships. Post-Olympic career, he went back to Auburn to become the assistant coach in 2006 and then became head coach in 2009 all the way through to 2018. And during that time, Auburn won the NCAA national title in 2009, and he trained countless Auburn swimmers to the Olympics. He coached Brazilian swimmer Cesar Cielo Filho to the 50-metre freestyle gold medal at the Beijing Olympic Games in 2008. He's now the VP of Swimming Performance and Education at Fitter and Faster, America's number one swim camps, and he hosts the incredible swimming podcast Inside with Brett Hawke, where he interviews the world's greatest former and present swimmers and swim coaches. It's an honour and a privilege to have one of the great minds of sport join me for a chat. So welcome, and thanks for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show, Brett Hawke. How are you, mate? Greg, you absolutely nailed the intro, mate. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> as, as a fellow podcaster, you know yeah. that's not easy. I know. As, as we were going, I was like, wow, impressive. Look at this. <laughs> thanks, mate. I appreciate that. <laughs> no worries. i um, I got to give you a shout-out to uh, our Instagram buddy. Um, I think his name's Alf Pat who's riding around Panama, 900-kilometer ride, and he mm. said he's really enjoying your show and my show, and he kind of reached out to us both and said, hey, you guys should have each other on, on each other's shows. So um, thanks, Alf, for you know, the introduction, and here it is. We're, we're together now. <laughs> yeah, I love it, man. It's, yeah, it's great, and, and I'm into that too. You know, I like, I like the little shout-outs, and I love when people reach out and comment about shows that mm. I'm doing or you're doing, and it kind of connects us, so I'm, I'm glad he did that. Yeah, no, I think it's fantastic. Are you living in the U.S. permanently now? Yeah, so um, I, I moved over here in, uh, in 2006 from, from Australia, finished up my career in swimming mm. and decided 
I had something hanging over my head, actually. I hadn't finished my degree from college. I went back and- Is that right? Yeah, I turned yeah. professional a little early and, and that was kind of always just lingering. So came back to do that and just fell into coaching. And from 2006 on, I was coaching at Auburn University in Alabama, living there. And then um, after I decided that was enough, I kind of- uh, became a little bit of a traveling Wilbury, uh, uh, you know, so I, I spent some time in LA and now I've just moved back uh, up to Delaware. And right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm in Florida, so I'm kind of all over the place. Oh, right. We're, we're right next door to each other. I'm in Florida at the moment as well. And um, now you you married an American woman as well, I yeah. think. Um, well, yeah, she's Jamaican, but uh, yeah, she, Jamaican. <laughs> she is American citizen, but um, but she's of Jamaican heritage. I feel like I, I only mentioned that because I feel like I know probably a dozen or more Australian guys that have come over to the US and, and married Americans over here. We're slowly infiltrating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. You end up getting stuck here. You have a kind of a two to three year plan and then you end up <laughs> being here 20 years. You're like, oh, well, that's it. I'm done. So, Oops, oops. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you plan on getting back to Australia in the future or what are you thinking? I love it. You know, when I was yeah. coaching at Auburn, I was just into the work and, and time just flew by. Now that I'm out of that realm, um, you know, I do miss Australia and, I, and mm. I've, I've been homesick. I just don't know how I would get there now. You know, I've got twin girls that are 12 and uh, I, just, I just couldn't, you know, move them over to there at this stage of their life. So uh, I'm here for now and I'll probably be here for a little while longer. Yeah. Now, here's a question for you and I don't mean to put you on the spot. Oh, yes, I do. Um, would you rather coach the Australian or the US Olympic? swim team honestly mate I, I represented the u.s once in 2011 i went to the world university games as a coach for the u.s team and i felt really awkward and i promised mm -hmm. myself i wouldn't do it again even even though i love america i'm, I'm an american citizen I, 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 fully, I, I fully embraced it you know once you represent australia at, at a couple of olympics i mean that's in your blood and that's mm -hmm. hard to get out of and i felt really awkward on the deck and uh, being around the Australian coaches. It just, it didn't fit me. And I, and I, and I just said, I, I would never do it again. So if I had a chance, I would certainly love to represent Australia at an Olympics. That's fantastic. I think you and I are much the same. You know, I, I hold a dual, dual citizenship as well. Um, but there's something, you know, I love America and everything it's given me in terms of my career as an athlete. It gave yeah. me so, so much and the, the sponsors and the people and the teams that I've created here. But it's funny, isn't it? There's just like, deep inner core thing that says, oh, I'm still kind of Australian, feel a little bit uncomfortable, <laughs> yeah. you know, in, yeah. in the other country's colours. So I get it. I get where you're coming from. Um, when, when you compare your career to your coaching career, what, what's given you the bigger thrill um, in terms of, you know, your own individual performances, say qualifying for the Sydney Olympics must have been just absolutely mind-boggling to you but how does that compare to some of the thrill from some of the athletes that you've had and and what do you think what, what gives you the biggest buzz i mean it's a, it's a good question it's really hard to answer because i think i, I kind of categorize them in two different ways and certainly one um in, in a way was very selfish you know me me mm. me swimming at olympic games felt very singular even though i was representing my country and and my parents and my friends and family and school and everybody that knew me and grew up with me it felt like a selfish act whereas coaching feels very um very much like a team act you know i felt very connected when my my athlete won the olympics in the 50 freestyle in 2008 i was representing wow. brazil and and i cried harder than i've ever cried before because it was mm -hmm. just this thrill of mm -hmm. knowing that we had achieved something 
monumental and, and I felt part of it. So um, it's a tough question, yeah, but uh, I, I do feel like I've enjoyed both experiences separately for sure. Mm-hmm. I can imagine, you know, I only I have a similar sort of experience for the 2000 Olympics. I my own personal story. I was uh, kind of left off the Australian Olympic team, and mm-hmm. actually it was the only time I've been the front pages of the Australian newspapers back mm-hmm. then. Was uh, with the with, with the case that went sort of after that that team selection. But mm-hmm. anyway, I had a mate reach out to me from Canada, Simon Whitfield, and, and Simon said, "Greg, you know." You, now that you're not in the Olympics, how about you come over and, and train with me to get me ready mm. uh, for, you know, the 2000 Olympic Games? I said, sure, mate, let's go do it. And so I spent four months, five months in Canada with Simon and then he went down and, you know, I was in the stands as the first reserve for the Australians. And um, and here comes Simon down Macquarie Street, you know, down down in front of the Opera House there and yeah. and then he kicks in front and he and he wins the gold medal and I was, I was, you know, in tears, you know, mm. it was a really, really special moment. And then, you know, this is pre 9-11. So he was after the, he, sort of, he jumped off the dais and ran over and put the medal around my neck and said, this is yours, mate. And I was like, oh, mm. <laughs> I mean, it was a really special moment. I think that's where sport gives us those, you know, you're a grown man, but you still got these tears and these, this emotional joy is just unbelievable. I mean, for Cesar, was he the first ever Brazilian Olympic gold medalist? For he swimming? was, yeah, for swimming, yeah, first, first in the country's history, and they've got a storied history of, of gro- a lot of great Olympians. And but he was mm-hmm. the first on top of the dais, and honestly, even some of the guys that had come before him were there, and they were crying, and and they just felt part of the gold medal. It was really um, something very unique and very special at that point in time, um, something that I, I couldn't never replicate in that sense, you know winning a country's first ever gold medal in a sport. I mean, it's just insane. And so, yeah, it was very special. And actually uh, today I've actually been um, talking to Caesar on WhatsApp. He's in Brazil right now. And we were actually just reminiscing and I was sending him some photos of, of back then. And, and I actually sent him some photos today of, of, uh, of the event and photos that he'd never seen before. And he said he started to get an emotional response again. So it was just coincidence that we were just talking today about that. And and didn't he did he win that from lane eight? What was he in? I mean, for sprint swimming, it doesn't matter too much what lane you're in, does it? Or um, not necessarily, but I mean, the fastest swimmers generally qualify in the middle of the pool. He actually won the bronze medal in the hundred freestyle from lane eight. That's and right. Then, it was a hundred. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep, and you're when right. he did that, he actually had this moment straight after the race where he looked at me and said. I'm going to be unbeatable in the 50. No one's touching me. And oh. so he, he, he swam the next couple of days in the 50 freestyle after the 100, and he, he qualified fastest out of the morning into the semifinal, qualified fastest into the final, and then ended up winning from lane four in the final. So it was, he just made his mind up at that stage that he was going to be unbeatable once he'd won that bronze medal in the 100. Wow. Is, that must have given you the chills. To have an athlete oh, yeah. just go, I know. It's like I know I'm going to win. I mean, yeah, it was incredible. The last words he said to me as he walked to to the ready room, the marshalling area where the you know the top eight swimmers in the world mm-hmm. go and and spend their last minutes alone. He looked at me and he said, "Don't worry, I got this." And I was wow, like, wow. I mean, <laughs> it, it was incredible. You, know, you just don't have that type of confidence in that type of scenario. I mean, he's a 21 year old kid, never been to the Olympics before, and. He's looking at me like, I got this, no problems kind of thing. And wow. it's like, oh, shit, wow, there we go. And, and, and the best part about that is, I mean, we're talking about an event where, dun, dun, 
that's mm-hmm. the amount of time between you're an Olympic champion and you suck. I mean, it's like this. Yeah. And so to have the confidence that you're going to get the dun, the first dun rather than the, I mean, that's that's incredible in itself. You know, like the reaction times and the power and the, yeah. the finish. It's just incredible. There's a lot of a lot of mistakes can be made. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of things can go wrong. And so what you end up having to do is you have to practice with intent. You have to practice um, at, at a very very high level. It's almost like I liken it to somebody that's, uh, you know, playing uh, an instrument like a violin or something and becoming the world's best at that. You know, it's you can't make a mistake. Mm-hmm. Everything is perfect and everything has its place and it's in symphony when it's working. It's it's beautiful music. And that's kind of what he was creating is this beautiful symphony that he had practiced over and over again. So by the time he got to the situation where he's under immense pressure and under, you know, intense scrutiny, He's just going back to what he's trained to do, and that's that's really. I mean, he was fanatical when it came to the precision in his training, which then enabled him to race at that level. I, I think you just touched on one of my favorite words when it comes to high performance, and that word is intent. Yeah, it's one thing to show up every day and have a great coach and a team around you and have all sorts of athletic ability and be doing the work, but when you come and you do everything you can with absolute intent. Mm-hmm. It is. It's amazing what can happen, you know, and, yeah. and that that being your nutrition, your sleep, your body work, your, your your physical training, all of that. Yeah, it's just incredible. And I I think that's why I've always been so impressed with you guys. You know, the the raw sprint power athletes because it truly is that difference. Like for you guys, that intent, that absolute what's running through your system have i taken too much caffeine that i you know i'm not i'm going to pause too long on the block or i i love that you know whereas a, i'm an you know an hour 45 athlete and you know i screw up the start i can kind of make up for a bit later i mean not that i want to but i yeah. with you guys there's none of that i mean that's been for you there must be real joy in coaching athletes to find that intent, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I expand on that word. I, I use the word intention, you know. So I, I, I'm always about that. I'm, I'm the same as you. I love that word, the intention. How, what are you doing it? How are you doing it? Um, were transitions important in your race? Very. I mean, we, we talk about I- intent and it's the, the difference between most races are at the Olympic distance are one, but somewhere between five and 20 seconds. Yeah. Um, and, and generally, if you look at your transitions, when you come from swim to bike, yeah. you can't, you, you can't afford to be slipping, Mm-mm. you know, that helmet clip slips slightly and like, damn it. Yeah. Did you, did <laughs> like, you practice those transitions? Oh, relentlessly. I mean, the only, I guess by the time a bit less as I got older, you know, in my late thirties and I've probably done 400, 500 races and I'd yeah. practiced it. So probably less, mm-hmm. uh, these days with, with the, the teenagers getting into the sport, um, the coaching now is so much better than, you know, than we yeah. had in sort of the early nineties there, but they're, they're now doing everything with a lot more intent than we did. Um, and, and the equipment's gotten better and, exactly, you know, you, yeah. you know, it is, it is improving. Do you guys practice a lot of that? I mean, is that. Well, I, well, what I was going to say is the 50 free is a transition. That's what it is. It's a transition. You have to be perfect. You have to be spot on, mm. you have to practice it with intent. You have to do it over and over again. Um, just like you would have done as, as a young triathlete, you know, practicing with intent. It's not, it's not good enough. I mean, I'm sure you went into a race and had a bad transition once and, and thought to yourself, that will never happen again. I'm going to be spot on. And so you went back and you were relentless with it. And so mm-hmm. that's what the 50 free is. You have a bad 50 free and you, you, you lose by a couple of hundreds of seconds and 
at some point you say to yourself, that's not going to happen again. I'm going to control that controllable. You know, everybody thinks it's hundreds of seconds, but you can actually seriously control those. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say that you're in control of a tenth of a second, but that's what it comes down to in our race is that I knew within a tenth of how fast I was swimming at a certain point. I could I could swim uh, I could swim at 25 from the block and turn around, look at my coach and say that was 1032. And he'd be like, yep. 1032 on the dot. Like I knew to the hundredth of exactly how fast I was swimming. So that's how precise we would get with, with our yeah. swimming. Now, how would you train that reaction time? I had, um, our friend, I don't know if you're friends with Mark Weber, Aussie Formula mm-hmm. One driver on the show, and he's been a good mate of mine for a long, long time. And nice. I've always been impressed with how they, the Formula One drivers driving these cars at 300 K an hour plus, and it's just, just and other drivers around you. And and their reaction times, they just have to keep practicing those. It, what are you guys actually doing for reaction time training? You know, That's a good question. It, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there, there are things you can do and not like we'll, we'll just work off the starters gun. Like we'll, we'll pull out the starters. It, it's all electronic these days. So we'll just pull out a starters gun and we'll do stuff where we're reacting to that. And, and um, in swimming as well, they have lights that when the gun goes off, the light goes off. And and they say that the light, you see the light fraction of a second faster than you hear the noise. Mm, so we'll actually, we'll turn the sound off sometimes to just react from the light as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's drills and skills that you can do and are, and are absolutely necessary that you need to do in order to practice your reaction time. So it's not just about how fast you move, it's about how well you move once you start moving fast as well. So it's like there's, there's precision, there's precision in the movement, you know, yeah, yeah. it's not just jump, <laughs> you know, you watch the hundred, uh, on the track and you watch, yeah. you know, those guys come out of the blocks and it's yeah. not, it's not who can get out of the blocks the fastest, who, who can get out with technique and speed and power. So yeah, those things are all important. And, and, and they, again, they come down to hundreds of seconds. It's just ridiculous how much time we spend on a few one hundreds. It's it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, but how many medals? How many times have you seen a gold medal go to the guy that's gone like literally that that yeah. like hundreds of a second, like over and over again? It really comes down to it. And, the, and my wife taught, uh, my wife Laura swam for SMU. A little side note, and uh-huh. I think they came second to you guys in '97. Uh, anyway, she won the NCAA in the team relay, nice. but she would always tell me, yeah, that that, that quote that basically it's Dun, on the first dunt, you're an Olympic champion, and on the second dunt, you just suck. You came fifth, and yeah. it's like that—that's what I love about your sport. It's just the the dialing in, like you said, the intention, all of that. Now, what I want to do is just get to know you a little bit better, and maybe just rewind the clock. Yeah. And when did you sort of? Where did you grow up, and where did you first find your passion for swimming? I grew up in Maroubra in Sydney. Um, one of the bra boys, they, they kind of made it famous, you know, the surfers in that area as being mm-hmm. a gang. And um, so it was a rough area. It was, it was tough, a lot of tough kids, a lot of great um, swimmers, a lot of great triathletes, a lot of great surf lifesavers in the area. It was very, it was very sporty. You know, everybody that lived in that area did something along those lines, uh, grew up as a surfer, a skateboarder. Like there's just a lot to do and a lot of great athletes around. Um, I, I, for instance, grew up where I had multiple Olympic swimmers come out of my program, you know, um, 
Lee Habler was in 92, Malcolm Allen was in 96. There was just a, a number of them mm. um, and, and someone that's actually just got himself in the headlines again. Unfortunately, one of my good mates growing up was Scotty Miller. I, don't mm. know I just saw him. that. I just saw that on the news this past week, the poor guy. He's, uh, yeah, he's had a rough one, uh, you know, yeah. rough, cho- bad choices in his life. But I grew up with Scotty, you know, I know him real well. We actually lived together at one stage. So, you know, I grew up with high level of athletes around the Maroubra area and didn't fully realize or didn't didn't have a full appreciation for it maybe i did maybe i maybe i was thankful that i had high levels of competitors all around me um and so we were lucky in that sense and but i wasn't i wasn't good you know i wasn't i wasn't one of those people i was just Mm. i was i was just an average athlete i was an average swimmer and at some point that became very frustrating for me you know um i got into swimming because I had severe asthma growing up as a kid and doctors basically said, look, just throw him in the pool. And, and so I started just swimming for health reasons. You and you and Kieran Perkins, right? I think he was. Yeah, 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 exactly. So at the age of 11, I jumped in the pool in Maroubra and, um, you know, I loved it. I just, I just felt at home, you know, I played rugby, I, I ran track, I did some other things, but nothing gave me the feeling that swimming gave me. I got a lot of fulfillment out of it and I loved going to, to training and, and, and just doing the training. I loved it. So, but it wasn't until about the age of, um, 17 where I hadn't, I hadn't fully developed as, as a young man yet. I was still very immature, but I was getting frustrated with the fact that I wasn't as good as swimmer as I wanted to be. And so, um, it, it's around that time where you, where you graduate high school, right? And, and it was as that time when my dad said to me, all right, look, it's time to get a real job. Like, you know, you've, you've got to go out into the workforce. School's over. Swimming was fun, but now it's time to move on. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't let it go. I started university in Sydney at the age of 18, hated it, dropped out within three months. And, um, and I knew the Olympics was coming up in, um, three, uh, about two and a half years from now. So by the time I dropped out of, uh, college to the time that the Atlanta Olympics was coming around was about two and a half years. And I just said to my dad, I'm going to dedicate this next few years to swimming. And he's like, well, how you, you got no money, son, what are you going to do? You know, we, we didn't have money. Hmm. And, uh, so I, what I did was I worked at pizza hut as a, as a, <laughs> as a pizza hut delivery driver. So this is, this is my routine, honestly, for two years. So what I did was I, um, I would, uh, go to practice in, um, the morning, right. I would sleep during the day. Then I would go to practice in the afternoon. So that would be my two practices. And then from practice in the afternoon, I'd go straight to Pizza Hut and I'd make myself a pizza for dinner. And then I'd deliver pizzas till one o'clock in the morning. And then I'd come home, get a few hours sleep and go to practice and start it all again. And that's what I did for two years. That's how I sustained myself. I love it. And and that's what I, you know, I thought to myself, well, I'm dedicating my life to swimming, you know, so that's how I'm going to have success. And what I didn't realize is that, you know, I wasn't taking care of the diet. I wasn't taking care of the sleep. Well, you were doing what you could with what you had at the time. And, and, And what I love about that is just the simple passion like you you wanted something badly enough Mm -hmm. and you didn't have the means to worry about diet and so you you had to do it the way you were doing it i i think that's extraordinary keep going i didn't mean to interrupt no you're right that's it i mean you're you're on you hit the nail on the head there i was just passionate about it and i didn't know whether i was going to make it i was just i was just Mm -hmm. a contender at that stage i was in the top i was in the top 20 in australia it wasn't like i was you know two or three i was just in the top 20 but i wanted to just have a crack at going to an Olympic trials, trying to make an Olympic team. It was just something that really drove me. And uh, I ended up going there 
and a crazy story. Don Talbot was the was the head coach of Australia at the time. Mm-hmm. Don Don was a ruthless leader, a uh, very smart man, but ruthless. And um, the qualifying standards for the Olympics were if you finished in the top six in the 100 freestyle, then you were automatic qualification consideration. You know, they could take the top six athletes. Mm-hmm. And I ended up finishing six in the 100 free. And Don Talbot came to me after that and said, look, Brett, you, you've made great progress and progression. If you finish um, first or second in the 50 free, we'll, we'll definitely take you to Atlanta. So a couple of days later, I swim the 50 free and I finished third by three one hundredths of a second. Oh, get out. And I think oh. to myself, well, I'm still in the top six in, in the relay, so I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I feel like no one said anything to me. I had to wait an extra couple of days. No, no one approached me, nothing. So then I'm sitting there and they're, they're announcing the team. And as they're announcing the team, they're doing it alphabetically and they get to, they get to my letter H, you know, Hawk, and they skip straight past it and they keep going. And so I'm, right. I'm devastated. Like that was it. Like I, I didn't make the Olympic time. I didn't get picked. And, um, Never, no one ever told me why they didn't take me. It was just, uh, you, you're, you're out. And so my Olympic dream was over. I was completely uh, devastated. Mm. And it really didn't hit me until I sat there and watched the Olympics in 96 and watched all my teammates and watched my friends and watched all the competitors. That was like, I just felt like a complete loser. You know, I was like, that. I, I my life is over. I'm, I'm a Pizza Hut delivery driver. You know what I mean? <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> and from that moment on, Looking back now, I've been to five straight Olympics and um, haven't missed an Olympic team since, you know, swam in Olympic finals, won Olympic gold medals from the moment where I felt like a complete loser and never thought I'd make an Olympic team. And so it's amazing how you can shift your you – can, you can change the trajectory of your life if you want to. Mm-hmm. It, takes, it takes a shit ton of work and a lot yeah. of belief and a lot of sacrifice. Uh, but I, honestly, from 1996 on, I thought that was it, I'm done. And, um, and, and I just started making – some choices to take back control of my life and and do things the way I I should have done them in the first place. A quick mini break. I really want to encourage you to do something special for yourself and sign up to Athletic Greens and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. I'm loving the new Hypervolt Go percussion massage device from Hyperice. It's powerful, quiet, lightweight, and TSA approved so I can use it while I travel. Check out the Hypervolt Go and all the other incredible Hyperice gear at hyperice.com and use code GREG10 for a 10% discount. That's hyperice.com. If you want to see all your key metrics like pace, distance, stroke rate, and heart rate while you swim, you need the Form Smart Swim Goggles. Go to formswim.com forward slash Greg. That's formswim.com forward slash Greg and get $15 off. Or you can use code Greg15 at checkout. Is that when the, the school system in the university system in the US came on the radar? Yeah. Who, planted, who planted that seed? Or was it a scout that found you and said you should come and swim with us? How did that all work out? It's another crazy story, really. I was swimming at Gosford in 95. I was training up in Gosford and... Um, during the winter, uh, no, actually during the summer, which was winter in America, it just randomly a, a school kid from Auburn University came over to work at the pool that I was swimming at, just to work as a as a lifeguard uh, at the pool, and we start we started up a friendship. So I ended up making uh, a team to that traveled to the World Championships in 1995. This was the year before the Olympics, 
and uh, in, in Rio. And so I'd never been to America before. So on the way back from Rio, I decided, why don't I just fly up to this place called Auburn, Alabama, <laughs> catch up with my friend and then fly home. So I asked the Australian team if I could do that. So all I had was my Australian swim gear from this world championship meet, went up to see him for a couple of days. And uh, he was just a student at the, at the university. And he said, we've got a pretty good swim team. Why don't you come down and introduce yourself? So I went down there and they were, they had a practice going on during, uh, I I just walked in and, um, I had my Australian uniform on and kind of caught the attention of the coach that was down the other end of the pool, but he sent one of his, you know, sent one of his minions down to talk to me, one of his, uh, you know, graduate assistants. And, uh, I said, you know, can I talk to the coach? I'm interested in your swim team. And uh, he, he said, uh, coach asked you to write your times down. And, uh, and <laughs> It's not that easy, mate. <laughs> yeah, he'll get, he'll, get back, he'll get back to you. So I wrote the times down and I, I saw him walk down the other end of the pool. The coach looked at him, looked at me and started walking directly to me. And I was like, oh. okay. I grabbed his attention at least. So it just so happened that it was uh, David Marsh, who's uh-huh. one of the greatest um, swim coaches in, in the history of the world. I just walked onto his pool deck um, at the right time, at the right place, and um, knew nothing about Auburn, Alabama, um, and ended up uh, signing on to the team and becoming a part of their team after I'd missed the – Missed the team in 96. He, he threw me a lifeline and said, hey, Brett, are you still interested in coming to America? I said, yeah, absolutely. And so I went there. Um, I went there in um, December of 96. So I started with the team in January of 97. And in March of 97, we ended up winning the national championship. I ended up winning the 50 freestyle at the NCAA championships. Um, and uh, from that moment on, he put me on a full scholarship, and the rest was the rest was history. It was just isn't uh, isn't that just a great how life can yeah. life can just rip the blanket from underneath you, and you fall on your backside, and mm-hmm. you feel like it's over, yeah. and then you just have these little the stars align, and it's yeah. like no, this this is the path you're meant to be doing, Brett. This yeah. is not the one. This is it. I I find those extra, those kinds of stories just extraordinary. Yeah. And and they're important to share because people need to hear them, especially people that are going through tough times right now. Mm. It's like this too shall pass. Yeah. You know, and you will have other doors open for you, but you need to take the oppor- you need to take and make the opportunities. Because yes. what you did there is, you know, call the Australian team. I want to go see my friend in Auburn. I'm on the pool deck. Hey, I want to talk to the coach. But like you there was opportunity there, but you really you know, took advantage of it. I, yeah. I just think that's an extraordinary story. That's yeah, wonderful. you got to put yourself in position to yeah. to make those things happen. And look, you just can't give up on yourself. I think that's what it comes down to. Like uh, mm. there were there were times last year where I was as um, deflated or as anxious or as um, you know depressed as anybody in the world. You know, it was, it was tough yeah. for all of us. But yeah, you you realize, look, there's light at the end of the tunnel. If you just keep forging forward, if you wake up every day and say, no, not today. Like I'm gonna. I'm going to figure something out today. And that's kind of the mentality that I had. I just wouldn't give up on myself, even though everyone else was telling me around me, like, stop, quit, do something different. Something inside of me said, keep pushing forward, keep waking up, keep believing in yourself. And eventually a door opened that was just too good not to walk through. And that's kind of how you set yourself up for those things. And at that time at Auburn, or was there another moment or was it over time that you started to believe, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, it's kind of average, maybe top 20 in Australia, but was there a moment in your career where you're like, actually, I do have some ability at this. It may not be all the obvious talent that they were looking for at the time, but maybe your ability to be intentional with the work you're doing or whatever. Was there a moment you were like, actually, I can do this? 
Well, it's funny that you say that because I've had time just recently to reflect on, you know, some of these questions. It's very difficult to self-reflect sometimes, and, and sometimes you just avoid it. And and throughout my podcast, I've been asking hard questions of people, just like you're asking of me now, of, of these questions where you do have to self-reflect. So I've spent some time doing that recently. And what I've discovered about myself is that there are certain beliefs that were just there and that I had to overcome. For instance, I'll give you a for instance. So I never, I, I never grew up in a family where we, belie- where we believed or we were taught that we were anything other than just average, you know, and that's not a bad thing. We weren't, we weren't special. We weren't destined for greatness. Uh, that's not the, the, the way we spoke to each other. That's not the, the, talk, the, the talks that we had. We were just average people who would go to work and put in honest work and be honest people and just do the job. And so I never felt of myself to be special. And mm. what I found throughout my career in moments like this, where I walk into Auburn University, I can't have an average mindset anymore. So what I found that I did in, in self-reflection, I found out that I did this, that I would put on a mask, you know, I, and, and sometimes it was a full body mask where everything about myself was was fake in a way in terms of my belief system about myself or just my my inherent you know what I believed about myself you know what I'm saying with this mm-hmm. so when I went to Auburn University I put myself in situations I would believe that I was somebody that I was taught that that I grew up to believe that I wasn't so I believed I was special I believed I was destined for greatness and I had to really I had to convince myself of that at times I had to put on this mask and and pretend I was somebody that I didn't truly believe that I was, but it paid it paid off. And I found I found out when I when I did have this alter ego kind of thing. It's almost like Eminem has this alter ego, you know, like and <laughs> and so you you're not necessarily that person in real life, but in in an athletic sense, I had to become that person. I had to believe I was somebody better. I had to believe I was special, and so I I became very competitive and very in a way, um, arrogant, uh, you know, that I had this belief that I was going to be better than everybody else. And I would, I would speak that way. I would walk that way. I would act that way. I would perform that way. I would put myself above people in order to compete at the highest level. That's the only way I could do it. Is that making sense to you? No, it does. I, I think I think you and I are a lot alike, actually. And I think a lot of that is this, and I've spoken about on this show a fair bit, is this... Um, I wasn't a naturally confident athlete mm-hmm. and it was, was, and I've even said it with other athletes that I competed against it. Like, really? You always came across it. You were, yeah. you know, you were really confident. I was like, actually, yeah. no, I, I think I left a lot of great performances, you know, to the side because I, 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 I wasn't confident enough to go for the win. And I, yeah. I've talked about it a lot. I had to learn how to win. I wasn't a natural born winner. I was somebody that had to learn how to win. And a yeah. part of that was, yes, living life with intent, understanding, you know, sleep, nutrition, blah, 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 all the bits and pieces. But then the visualizing and the mental games, was it was a lot of work for me to constantly come back and build my confidence and build my confidence. And towards the end of my career, I'm talking late 30s, early 40s, I really felt like I was becoming the person that I was trying to create that entire time. Yeah. But it took me 20 years of doing it, you sure, know, yeah. relentlessly before I could walk onto a start line and go, right. I'm going to win this race. And I felt like it felt like I was going to win it, you know, deep yeah. inside. Yeah. It wasn't like just saying it out loud. It was like, no, I'm like, like you had with, uh, with Celio when yeah. he said, I'm going to win. Yeah. I had a few moments like that towards the end of my career, probably from about 35 onwards, but really 
you know, when I go back and look at the missing out on the 2000 Olympic team and some of those things that happened to me, a bit like you missing 96, were what I kind of needed to take yeah. more ownership and more control of what, you know, I was doing in my, in my own life. Um, yeah. yeah but, so did you feel that by even even just doing this over and over again that it did start to change your own self-belief and your, your attitudes and that it wasn't just projecting confidence but it actually was an inward confidence? Did it start happening for you? For sure, uh, to a certain extent. Uh, the only time it wouldn't work for me where I, where I felt like an imposter, where I felt like I'd been exposed as a faker mm. was during – the biggest moments when the spotlight was the brightest. I didn't mm. perform well in those situations. Mm -hmm. I, I, I felt like everybody could see through me. I felt like everybody knew I was faking it because what would ultimately happen is I'd get into a room with the top swimmers in the world and they were bigger and stronger and uh, they were just better all-round athletes. You know, when you, when you walk into a room with Roger Federer, you don't think that you're the best tennis player on earth because you've seen Roger Federer play. You're like, you're not stupid either, you know? And so... <laughs> I felt like when I walked into a, a, a pool with Alexander Popov, who's one of the greatest mm. sprinters of all time, I felt like a faker. I felt like, Brett, you can't, you can't convince him that you're better than him. He's not, he, he doesn't believe you. And everybody in this pool, when the spotlight is on you, they can see the difference. They, they know. And so it was very hard for me in those big moments to get on the podium. You know? So I ended up finishing fifth at the world champion, fourth at the world championships, constantly fourth and fifth and sixth mm. that's where i would finish year after year i would never get on the podium because i found myself tensing up in those big moments and it happened at the athens olympics i was i was second fastest into the finals in lane five so i'm in the middle of the pool that's where you want to be in olympics you want to be right there and as soon as the spotlight hit me i started to have these doubts and and it was and the, and i'm talking very slight you know when mm -hmm. when most people would jump into my head be like oh no you're pretty confident and there was just stuff creeping in that just made me feel like an imposter and it just didn't allow me to pull the best out of myself it allowed me to swim really well and compete if you look at that race i missed the podium by less than a tenth of a second so you're thinking to yourself that's that's nothing but i knew inside of me i wasn't performing at my best you know what i'm saying yeah yeah i get it i get it but do you know do you think it made you uh, a better coach yeah because of that like you can actually see that in your athletes now yeah yeah oh yeah i can read body language from a mile away now because i spot it and i'm like because you have it it's yeah. amazing when you've this is the gift you've been given yeah you know what i mean you've been there you know what they're going through you can relate to them mm -hmm. at a far deeper level because you've gone through it yourself. And that's what makes you an extraordinary, you know, wonderful coach. I have a side story with Popov, Alexander Popov. Mm -hmm. because he was in the 90s, he was, yeah. mate, it was Alexander Popov and then everybody else. Yeah. It was just he was a legend. But yeah. I remember swimming at uh, the pool in Threbbo after they built oh, yeah. a beautiful pool in the Snow Mountains. And mm -hmm. I came down to have the showers and we had the Australian triathlon team there. And then there was, um, uh, Popov's coach, what was his name? Gennady Turetsky. Turetsky, yeah, and uh, his whole squad there. And yeah, I went down Klim. to the showers. I went down to the showers, and Michael Klim came out, and he's like, "G'day, Greg." I'm like, "Oh shit, he knew my name. That was awesome, Klimmy." And uh, and we became mates since. But it was just like, "Oh wow." And then Popov came out of the shower and said, "Oh, g'day, Greg. Watch your race on the weekend or whatever." I mean, obviously in a very strong Russian accent. But 
but it was a it was a real thrill for me. Yeah. The fact that they knew my name, I felt like I'd made it. I felt yeah, like- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. You know, that's the way I felt about Popoff. I just re- <laughs> I, I revered the man. I was like, this guy is a legend. But but he was like that with me too. He's he's been on my podcast twice. I actually interviewed him from from mm-hmm. Russia. He's sitting in his sauna and uh, and he's giving this amazing interview. And that's just how he was. He was like that with me. But I I revered him. I just thought he was incredible. That's awesome. Yeah, I did see that is on your podcast. I think number fifty and then hundred. Which yeah, I went were appropriate. <laughs> yeah, exactly, I timed that well. Yeah, well, you're going to have to. What Grant Hackett's going to have to come back at number fifteen hundred, huh? <laughs> yeah, we've got a while for that. <laughs> a few years. Now, the NCAA program obviously worked for you. It was it was something that you know transitioned you out of this funk after missing you know Atlanta, yeah. got you you know two thousand two thousand four, and then the coaching program's been phenomenal. For young athletes maybe listening to this, you know, is it something you would encourage them to do for their own careers, not just swimming, maybe it's other sports, international athletes especially? I don't see the downfall and there's no negative to me. You know, there's only positive. You're going to get you're going to be part of a team which is you can, it's very hard to replicate the type of team that you're going to be part of other than when you're in college. These these teams have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of budget. You know, when I was the head coach at Auburn, my budget was over a million dollars just for the swim team. So it's like you're going to be well funded, you're going to be well looked after. You you get food, you get accommodation, you get some amazing training facilities. You get to be part of a team. You travel with your friends for four years. You you grow, you learn, you you get an education. I mean, like, where's the downside to me? You know, it's like, why wouldn't you? You could you could spend your time working at Pizza Hut in Sydney, or you could go to America and, and get a degree. It's like. It doesn't make sense. Like, of course, I'm going to do that, you know. And so, yeah, yeah. to me, there's only an upside. And then, look, you you spend your years 18 to 22. You come out, and you can be a professional athlete for the next 10 years. Go and- what about if you're a phenom, which we've seen some of these young athletes in high school athletes that, and then they come out and they have the option of taking, you know massive professional contracts to go professional right away or they could go to Stanford. Mm. What, what about then? Do you think they should delay that or do you think if they still should go do the NCAA? Because mm. for people, for listeners that don't know, if you go to NCAA, swim for a university under scholarship, you can't have prize money or a, a professional sponsorships on the outside of it. Um, so you put that on hold for four years and then potentially, you know, Maybe you're not as good a swimmer coming out of university as pre. I mean, I guess yeah. that's the gamble you, you you make, right? Like if you're Katie Ledecky and you're you're Olympic champion, and then now now you're going into college, like why? And to me, it didn't make sense. Like go and go and make as much money as you can. Yeah. Like yeah, that's kind know? of my mindset as well. The whole point of getting a degree is to make money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Have a job that pays you. But if the money's there now, you might as well take it. And you can always do a degree a bit later, right? Yeah. Well, that's coming from me. I don't know your background, but I didn't have a lot of money growing up. She she did, from what I understand. She comes from a very well off family. There, there. You know, she wanted an experience. She wanted to be part of a, a college team. Okay, well, that's fine. But. For me, I'm like, take as much money as you can out of athletics <laughs> while you can. Like, who knows? Like, you get injured and that's the end of you. And it's like, you know, yeah. take it take it while you can get it. So, yeah, in, in certain instances, I say. Yeah, the like, freaks of the world. The, the real yeah. freaks of the world, maybe take it while it's there. Yeah, get uh, it while you can. I think there was even that girl from Colorado and then she. Missy Franklin. That's it, Missy Franklin. Yeah, I Missy think she Franklin, had like a million-dollar sort of pro contract yeah. and she went and went to Stanford to swim and. I, I think she still made the Olympics coming out of university, but I don't she think did, she did. But she didn't do well. Yeah, she yeah, she yeah. missed an opportunity for millions of dollars. She kind of blew it, and uh, 
I don't know if she regrets it or not, but uh, you know, it's it's certainly she missed out on a lot. I think so. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's one of those tough. You're like decisions. I am. You're like I am. I think maybe it's an Australian thing. We we leave, yeah. we, leave we leave the Big Island. We're like, right. What can, yeah. what can we do as we transition out out of you know out of Australia? And now you've had some of the world's greatest coaches that you've either worked with or worked under. Um, yeah. David Marsh, you mentioned, geez, how many NCAA titles did that guy win? Twelve or something. Yeah, 12, um, and then Richard Quick came over, uh, and you you were working with him as assistant coach, and he also had numerous titles with um was it Stanford, Stanford and Texas? Women, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then what what do you think made these two coaches so great? And, and, and you know what separated them from the, the other great coaches around? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. They have uh, an it factor, you know. They have that. They have that special source that the other coaches just don't have. And it's like any great athlete, you know. What what makes Michael Phelps special? He's just a normal human being. He looks normal, but when he's in the water, he's abnormal, you know. And then that's, you know, there are coaches like that. And I think I'm very. I think I'm a very gifted coach. I think I'm actually a better coach than I was swimmer, and I was an Olympic finalist. So I think mm. I think I have some. I certainly have a gift. Um, that I feel like separates me from other coaches. But these two, uh, you, you're talking about the best of the best. They just have something that they have a way of connecting with kids on different levels that brings out the best in them. You know, mm. David at times was an antagonist. You know, he, he would, he would, you would hate him. And but that, that would bring yeah, out right. the best. In you. Yeah. Yeah. I hated oh. him. But you know, it would bring out the best in you. And that, and then, and he would just smile at the end of that, you know, and be like, I got you, you know, and like, <laughs> Son of a bitch, you did, you know, so, but then other times, you know, he'd put his arm around other people and, and they needed that. So it's like, they just have this gift to be able to manipulate people to, to get the best out. And I use that word manipulation in a way, in a positive light. I get know? it. I get what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and Richard was special like that too. Well, I mean, I think that also, I mean, when you look at your formula to become the great coach you are, I think being the athlete, you know, and, and working with numerous coaches along the way, and then being a coach and working alongside great coaches yeah. is all part of the the formula to make you who you are today. I mean, was it a hard transition for you? You know, I've, I've talked a lot in this show about transitioning, you know, from professional athlete to coach or just, you know, leaving professional sport was that a hard transition for you or was it a simple one to go back in 2006 and just start coaching actually for me it wasn't I didn't intend it what happened is I went back to do my degree like I told you and one of the coaches as soon as I got there one of the assistant coaches um got cancer and David asked me if I could fill in for the summer and so what he did was he gave me a group of 10 athletes that he didn't want to work with. He was like, these are, these are the pain in the ass group, you know. I want you to take them and, and you have freedom to do whatever you want with them. Like, you can do whatever you want. Just get them away from me. And I was like, okay. I wonder if they know that. Do they know that? If you <laughs> yeah, know that? I've, I've told this story a few times. They probably they probably looked around and were like, yeah, we're, we're the riffraff. So um, at the end of the summer, they all swam best times. And they were they were the happiest kids. They were, the, the, yeah. they, were the, they were all having a great time. And... David just said, wow, you've got a gift. Like, you, you're good at this. And I was like, that was the easiest thing I've ever done. Like, what was so difficult about that? I just made, wow. these, made him smile and swim fast. That was easy. So I was actually – I fell into coaching and, and it, it was, I was really good at it immediately. Within two years, Caesar won the Olympic gold medal. So I started coaching in 06. Wow. Two years later, I coached Olympic gold medalist. So it's like it all happened really quick. And now when I look back on it in hindsight, it's like, what well, that happened too quick. Because then I had to go through some some bumps and bruises once mm-hmm. I became the head coach. You know, you go from managing a team of 10 athletes, which is 
very manageable for me to now you're the head coach and you're you're you've got 60 athletes under you and then you've got a staff of 10 people and now all of a sudden I'm a manager I'm not a coach I'm a manager mm-hmm. so that management was very difficult for me so that transition was way harder than it was from going to swim to coach because because he won the gold medal sort of two years within your coaching career did it feel like uh, well now I've kind of won the gold now I got to prove why I won it was there that a little bit of like uh, or, or was it you know, because I've had no. friends that have won the gold medal as athletes at a young age, and then they kind of feel like the rest of their career they're almost trying to prove themselves to themselves and everybody else that they did deserve it. Yeah, maybe there was a, a piece of that. You know, there were certainly coaches that looked at me, and and you could tell they had that look of you, you lucky son of a bitch, you didn't earn <laughs> that. You know, like, you you didn't deserve that. That was two years. No way. No way. Like you're gonna burn in hell for that, you know. Like, <laughs> so I've been on pool deck for forty years. Yeah, you <laughs> son of a bitch. Yeah, you're gonna get yours. Don't worry. So there was certainly that. So I, I tried to, I, I tried to work against that. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to go to hell for this, you know. So, um, I think, I think there was, there was that part. Of it. I never, I never felt like after that I needed to prove myself. I was lucky no. that I had a great group of kids and they were doing well. It, at the next year, we went to the world championships. And I think I took 17 kids to the world championships and we ended up winning 23 medals. I mean, we just cleaned, oh. we cleaned house, broke world records. I mean, I was on fire. Was that 2009? Yeah. 2009, yeah. yeah. The world championships in Rome. We just, we just went berserk and, and I was breaking, you know, my, my guys were breaking world records left and right. So I felt like coaching was the easiest thing on earth. You know, I, yeah. I really connected with it. I was doing well. What was difficult for me, like I said, was management. I really, struggle with management. I, I didn't grow up in business. I didn't learn. I didn't do a business degree. I didn't learn how to manage um, ever. I didn't know how to know how to manage a budget or a staff or, a, you know, like, so dealing with people. And, and that was very, very difficult for me. So once I fell into the head coaching role in 2009, that's when coaching became really challenging for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you still had a, a tremendous success along the way. I mean, I think Auburn still were – Top ten every year yeah. in the NCAA's. I mean, you guys won the title, and didn't you? You get a NCAA Coach of the Year award and something. Yeah, in two thousand nine. Right? Yeah, Richard Quick was the head coach, and he he ended up um, falling mm. ill with brain cancer at the end of two thousand eight. So, for the period of about three months, I I filled in as the as the interim head coach, and we ended up winning the NCAA title that year. And they gave me kind of the co-head coach of the year for the NCAA. So it was, yeah, again, 2009 was a great year for me. Everything was clicking. It was just became more difficult once I became the head coach and now I'm in control of the whole program. And I'd never coached really women before. Even before that, it was just I was coaching men. And now they said, all right, Brett, you're the head coach of the women's team and I've got 30 women all of a sudden. It's like, so that was challenging to figure out the differences between coaching men mm. and women. And it was just all a struggle. So it wasn't, wasn't like we did terribly. It was just went from breaking world records to making things were just a lot more challenging, you know? Mm, I get it. When, when it comes to, I mean, talking some of your, your coaching philosophies and it's it's a it's an interesting sport swimming and, and it's a bit like athletics, but it's this kind of it's an individual sport. But tell me a bit about the role of the team and the relationships and, and how those relationships can help an individual perform at an even higher level. You know, because I notice that in the NCAA program, it really seems to me that it's a very there's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of 
we're all in this together. Have you? Is that yeah. kind of part of the whole coaching philosophy for you? For sure, yeah, absolutely. In order to be successful at the NCAA level or, you know, at the conference level, we were in the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, so in order to be successful either there or at the NCAA, um, you need a team of people collectively uh, performing. And the only way that you can get a team of people collectively performing is that if they care enough about each other so that the, their teammates' performance become equally or more important than their own performance. And that's when you get the best out of people. Um, so, you know, Caleb Dressel, who's one of the greatest athletes in the history of the sport right now, he went to Florida and they never won an NCAA title with him there. And he was dominating NCAAs at the time. And for four years, his team never won because they didn't have a team of people. They had Caleb Dressel and a couple of other athletes. So the importance of building a team at that level is really crucial. So, Everybody plays a role. Everybody's important. And the, the, the more cohesive and collective their thinking can be, the better you'll do as a team. And so if you're going to get judged, like you just said even before, when I, when I was coaching, we finished top 10 every year. Well, top 10 is an achievement, right? It's a, it's a big deal. But it's, it's not winning. And so in order to separate yourself from being a top 10 team and actually being a winning team, you need 15 to 20 athletes all performing at the highest level. And that's really mm. challenging to get. Mm. A, a part of all of that, you know, creating this kind of environment or getting the, the best out of an individual, have you, do you work a lot alongside the athletes with their mental strategies? Are you helping them with, obviously we, we discussed earlier about managing self-doubt and fear and anxiety and confidence and all that. Are you, do you have a hands-on approach with the visualizing practices and, you know, whether that be, word affirmations and all of that kind of stuff or do you outsource for for that kind of work no yeah i mean i i I do a lot of that myself i studied psychology that was my degree and uh and and then like we talked about i experienced these things myself where i had put on masks and i'd had to perform and and found self-discovery that way so i i have a good connection with the athletes i do think it's important to bring in another voice and other people to to help and aid and you know um be part of that process as well over over the course of a season. So we, we certainly bring people in. But in terms of um, general confidence and belief uh, in, in building, in working with athletes, then yes, I, I think there are certain things that you can do throughout the course of training and practices that need to be practiced. It's not about just training a system. Like in as a triathlete, you need a great engine. You need a system, you know, you need a mm. – uh, the physiology needs to be there for sure, right? But you also need that mentality. You know, I, I've I've watched um, recently a documentary on Lance Armstrong. You know, and we can say what we want about Lance, but his mentality was second to none, right? And he was a killer, and and so I think, and there were things Lance was doing along the way that enhanced that killer mentality as well, right? Um, apart from the drugs he was taking, right, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but in terms, I yeah, I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah. but in terms of his belief system and the way yeah. that he competed, you know, like he would, he, would, he would do things that even in practice would separate him. And that's what we try and do is we try and identify things that you're going to experience on race day and incorporate those into your training so that you're prepared. And a lot of that really has to do with repetition of excellence. You know, I think that that's – one thing, a commitment to excellence. You know, when you're mm. committed to excellence, it's a, it's a lot easier to be mentally tough and confident 
when you expect that out of yourself every day and you hold yourself to a standard, right? I think is there a component I, I've I was kind of thinking back, you know, and and in my own career at times when I felt mentally ready, physically ready, but emotionally I was wasn't in the right place. And and people might have heard me on the show say, but you know, if my relationships at home, uh, in my relationship with maybe my girlfriend at the time or whatever was, was a little bit off, it was like I couldn't perform. Yeah. And then I'd be up against guys where they'd just fallen in love or their mm. wife had just had a kid and they were just, you couldn't beat them. It didn't matter what you did. They were just yeah. on fire. Mm-hmm. And I've had quite a few doctors on this show and we've discussed kind of the fact that what you think has a direct impact on your physiology. You know, it's this, yeah. it's like this emotional trigger. How can we tap into that? Emo- how, how can you be emotionally happy in a happy place? Like you said, when you had those 10 athletes, and you were a happy squad and you were positive and you were enjoying it and the energy and you got a lot of results out of that. Is that something that as a as a coach for these, especially for these young athletes and but some of the Olympians you've had as well, you know, it's one thing to talk about visualizing a mental approach, but do you discuss with them kind of their their home life or how to manage their emotions and that kind of thing and expectations? Yeah, it's it's tough, right? But I found that the best athletes at the highest level are very good at compartmentalizing, right? And, and mm. that can be unhealthy in real life situations, but it can be very healthy in, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in athletic sense, right? So like yeah, you, yeah. you, I'm sure, didn't just have a situation with your girlfriend on race day, right? I'm sure that there was probably moments throughout your training where your girlfriend had an emotional effect on you. And so what what I found is the best athletes do compartmentalize even at training. You know, when when they walk into that pool, they become the, the super swimmer and, and everything else, they didn't care about the bills they had to pay. They didn't care whether their car ran out of gas on the way to the pool. They didn't mm-hmm. care whether they failed the test or their girlfriend broke up with them. When they walked into that pool, they were the athlete they wanted to be. And so they could compartmentalize. They could push everything else aside. Even for a short amount of time, they could have this immense focus. And it certainly translated well on race day. And that's what Michael Phelps, like how does Michael Phelps win 23 golds over multiple Olympics? Because he's great at compartmentalizing his life, which is now a struggle for him because he can't just shut things out anymore. He's got true, real feelings that he's dealing with. But as an athlete, he could shut that shit off and be like, I am superhuman right now. Nothing's penetrating me. I'm hyper-focused on performing. And um, that's what I found the best athletes do really well is that, mm. is that intense um, compartmentalization. I like that. It's like the, it's like their ability, it, they can escape mm-hmm. and go into this whole other world. But then when they finish their careers, there is no escape mechanism and mm-hmm. that's where they get themselves in a bit of trouble as we've seen yeah. with quite a few athletes, a lot, you know, when they retire yeah. and whether it be drugs and all sorts of things or just trying to find themselves and they don't have that escape button anymore. Yeah. It's an interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't thought about it. I think that's that, – that, that. now, shifting gear a little bit, the physical training for you guys and uh, – how much of it, you know, for a sprint swimmer, how much is it really just dry land versus in the water? I mean, are you in the water that much or is it just working in gym? And, and on that, I guess there's another question. Then and now, 
your career in the 90s into the early noughties compared to where we are now with technology and information and data. Has training changed much in those sort of 25, 30 years? Yeah, for sure, right? Like, so you mentioned early on, my best time was 22.07. At the time, I'm thinking to myself, how do I go fast? I spent seven years trying to break 22 seconds, right? And trying to figure it out. Couldn't figure it out. I laugh now at somebody who swims 22.07. I'm like, what a loser, you know? I, <laughs> how, it's like our sport too, mate. It's, yeah. trust me. I'm like, how easy is it to break 22? Like, Brett, come on, man. You couldn't do it? Like, <laughs> I could do it with my eyes closed coaching someone to do that now. So it's like, you know, it, yeah, it's shifted, it's changed, and it's evolved. And I think I've been part of that process in swimming, actually. I think I've, I've created a paradigm shift where when I came in, we started doing things differently um, not so much that it was completely unique, but what I what I took a I took more of a track and field approach. You know, actually, funny enough, I had an experience once where I went to train with a friend of mine, John Stephenson. Do you know John Stephenson at all? That name is so familiar, and I'm trying to think. Yeah, where so he's a, he, he's a 400 meter runner. I believe he got a gold medal at the Commonwealth yes. Games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on the four by four hundred relay. Yeah. Um, didn't they win gold? Yeah, won no. gold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, John, yeah. John's a good friend of mine. Anyway, I went to visit him in UCLA once, and he was training out there for a week with uh, Maurice Green, and I believe Maurice won yeah. on the hundred in in Sydney at the at the Sydney Olympics. Anyway, I spent a week with him, and it just changed my perspective on sprinting. You know, like this was incredible. So what what we ended up doing is training five days straight. And every workout was tough and it was three hours. So it was from 11 o'clock in the day to one o'clock in the afternoon. And and that's what you do. You clock in at 11, you clock out at one and you wouldn't come back until the next day. But every day was the same. So you'd, you'd go straight to the gym at 11, you'd work out for an hour and a half. Then you'd go to the track and you'd work out for an hour and a half. And a lot of that was initially skill-based stuff into speed work. And they would just repeat that five days. And then on the sixth day, they would do an active recovery, meaning they would get a massage or they'd go for a light jog or they'd go for a, a cold tub, whatever it was. And then on Sunday would be just a passive, just relax, you know, mm. and they would repeat this. And and I'm, and this guy's the fastest runner in the world. And these guys were blazing down the track. Anyway, I spent a week with them training. I thought to myself, what are we doing in the pool? Like we're, we're doing all this garbage. 5, 5 a.m. and then again, again, yeah. 3 p.m. It's like yeah. nonsense. Yeah. Like these guys yeah. are yeah. jacked and ripped and fast and happy yeah. and confident and brash and i'm like man i'm beat down all the time this is yeah. nonsense so it really shifted my perspective i started to think about swimming and and training differently and i and i started to implement some of those things into my training i started we started having success so yeah we got away from the traditional sense of, of swimming and sprinting and there was a revolution around 2006 honestly when i came into the sport uh, i was part of the revolution I was, I was there was a couple of people that were willing to take some risks and changes and that's like i said to you and when i started to experiment with those 10 athletes that first summer we did things that nobody was doing and it was laughed at like you can't swim fast doing that stuff and everybody's swimming fast and everybody's confident it's so all of a sudden it's like well hang on what are you doing uh let's copy that so now yeah swimming has shifted completely and and the way the amount of people the, the amount of people that are swimming way beyond what I did it, it, it makes me look like a joke now you know isn't so, it funny isn't it funny when we look yeah. back and we go I'm glad I got to have my time when I did because yeah. I, don't, I don't think an average guy like me is making it anymore yeah. but, I mean like Caleb Dressel swimming a second one second faster that that oh. and within 15 years I'm like come on I'm not that old you know like no. I, I can still remember when I was swimming a bit. 
15 years later, he's swimming a second faster than me in the 53. That is madness. You would think yeah. if you had told me 15 years ago that somebody would be swimming 21 flat in the 50, I'd say, well, he's just a drug addict. You know, like he's, yeah. there's no way you can do it. It's not humanly possible. But here we are. Yeah, the, the training has shifted so much and the mentality, it's incredible where we're at these days. It's funny we look at we look at our sport of triathlon and uh, we've talked about it on this show where you know when I was running and I was one of the the earlier guys to break the 30 minutes for 10k it yeah. was kind of a big deal and even it was a big deal for me it was kind of a lifelong goal and then I did it and everyone was talking about it then now if we even we go back to 2012 Olympics and Alistair Brownlee won you know in London there in front of 100,000 people a lot yeah. of pressure on the guy and he runs off the bike a 2906 yeah. and then now Eight years later, we've got guys that are out running Alistair at times for the five k. They're running thirteen thirty. Like they're almost. These guys can almost go to any individual sport and and be seriously competitive. Just Whereas, we, we, yeah, we really, really yeah. couldn't. Now, I also noticed with the swimmers, and maybe I don't want to talk too. I don't want to judge too much, but have swimmers leaned out a little bit? It looks like they're really like you said the the athletic guys have always been that sort of jacked lean i've kind of feel like the swimmers as a whole even over all the distances leaned out over these last 20 years yeah it's, it's less about it's less about pure muscle where i think that we used to think all right in order to be fast you have to be strong so let's gain muscle and it's not about that it's about gaining power you know and mm -hmm. the way that you can transfer that power into your stroke and so yeah the swimmers have leaned up a little bit for sure and um, learned to it, – it's called – they use the term functional movements now, right? So like course, every, yeah. everything you do in the gym is functional. So how, how does it translate to the pool? And so it's less about moving weight as opposed to how do you move weight in a way that you can transfer that power into the pool. And that's certainly what's happening now. It's very transferable and, and um, swimmers are extremely powerful but a little bit leaner, yeah. Mm, I've noticed that. And do you work with your athletes when it comes to the general health or do you stay away with that, you know, when we're talking supplements or anything like that? Or, I mean, do you have a team of staff that do that for you? Or, or what, do you, what do you kind of, when you go to an athlete, do you say, look, are you taking your, your vitamin D, your C and these bits yeah. and pieces? Or? No, I, I don't. I'm not that hands-on. I, uh, mm. I, I don't. But what I do do is figure out what they are taking and why. And like we'll see, yeah. we'll have yeah. conversations and then we'll say, all right, what, What's the products out there that are absolutely, no doubt, safe and healthy and, you know, are, are going to give you benefits, you know? Like mm -hmm. wh why, would, why wouldn't you just eat food at the right time, the right type of food at the right time? All right, why are we supplementing? So we'll figure that stuff out together and find companies that are obviously um, good to work with. But, but generally, I don't put a lot of um, emphasis on, that I put more emphasis on what you're eating and when you're eating it, you know, timing of food and, and the type of food and the quality, mm. who's making the food, that sort of thing. I think to me that's far more important than any any supplement you can put in your body. And then and then also we I spend a lot of time on the recovery and this is another shift in training that has been mm. huge for sprinting is that we started to appreciate and understand the value of recovery. It's so crucial to – performance and so we build in recovery throughout the week um and, and it's kind of like along the same lines as that maurice green thing is like you do a workout and 24 hours later you'd come back and do another one you wouldn't try and shove one in three or four hours later it's like allow the body to recover come back and perform at its highest level once it's ready to go again and so that that 
shift in mentality has certainly helped. Yeah, there's a, you got to allow the body to rebuild and, and and get stronger. And I mean, that's that, I think that's been the big one. I mean, for yeah. our generation, I put us in together here. Is it, it was kind of like this work harder and you know, and the, the science has started coming along, but really we listen to it a little bit when we go down the AAS or something in Australia. But really, like, oh yeah, I just want to work hard. I just want to be powerful and strong yeah. and fast. And but now you know, I look at these programs that are coming out. And the wearable devices that that we mm, can all have, yeah. whether it be biking, running, or or swimming. Now, I, 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 if you've listened, I've got Form Goggles, yeah. uh, Form Swim Goggles, sponsored this show. And having data on your on your lens, you know, I can see my stroke rate with the heart rate and my pace. So now I can play with cadence and power to figure out what makes me go faster, just like I did on the bike twenty years ago. It's yeah. like this yeah. new little bit of information that, that 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 that's there, and I think. These wearable devices that can monitor sleep, there's so many out there now, I won't mention any names, yeah. but and the type of sleep you're getting, the type of recovery you're getting, it's just, it takes that whole recovery to another level compared to what we had. Yeah. Uh, you know? and, yeah. and I think there's more information for, co- I think the coach's role is shifting in the sense that there's a lot of data and it's sifting through a bit like you said with the supplementations. It's sifting through and saying what data is really helpful and going to make you a better athlete and what is just noise. Yeah. You know? exactly. you There's know? a lot more information out there for athletes, whereas a lot, there's a lot of guesswork before and the, and all this inf- all this data is taking out some of that guesswork and giving you giving you hard stuff. But then you have to figure out, well, where do I put value in this? You know, I understand my my sleep pattern, for instance, right? It's telling me that I only got six hours and I'm at a seven out of ten in terms of recovery. It's like, well, you know, screw it. I, I got to go again. You know, like I don't care <laughs> what it's telling me. I got to I got to go. So it's like, yeah, you have to make those decisions still of like, uh, do I listen to this or um, do I push through this? And I think, yeah, it's all good information. It's certainly helping us, but I I, I don't I try not to get hung up on it. You know. It's it's an interesting one. I had a a guy by the name of Dr. Dan Plews on, and he's a incredible guy. Just uh, he he's a British guy living in New Zealand, helping with the America's Cup and the yeah. rowers and all sorts of sports down there. Exercise physiologist, and um, and his whole doctorate was on HRV, uh, you know, heart yeah. rate variability and the effects of maybe training the type of training you do each day, depending on what your heart rate variability is. And uh, it's kind of it's an interesting world now where the science is coming in and it can be incredibly useful, but at what point do we say, like you just said, look, I had a seven out of 10 sleep. I Let's just get this work in. Yeah. Um, I don't know. For me, for me, the future is exciting, but also scary in the sense because it's really how much are we stepping away from, you know, the best athlete in the world is going to be the one that also just works really, really hard with intent, you know? Yeah. And that's <laughs> it. I find it, um, I find people like the doctor you just mentioned as extremely valuable, but there's also a fine line that, that that's his passion, right? And that's where he's decided to dedicate his life into that one area and that one field. And to me, it's not about one area that's make or break, right? I'm not going to put all my time and attention into exactly what he's telling me. I'm going to take it on and, and see how I can apply it. But but that's his passion. And, and to him, that's everything, you know, it could be. I, I, don't, I don't know the guy, but I'm talking just in general terms. Mm. Sometimes when you meet people like that, they they think they have the answer. And what, what I think in terms of my ability to coach at the highest level is I have to take 
all those passions from all those different people and, and take it into and apply it into what I'm doing overall to get the, the best out of the athlete. And sometimes no, I, I just have to say, you know what, I don't agree with you in there. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I got to do this. And so well, I, I think in, in fairness to, to Dan, I think he's one of those guys you could easily work with. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he's doing phenomenal work with, yeah. with all these, with all these guys, the grinders and everybody yeah. Yeah. on the America's cup. Yeah. Actually, I saw on one of your, your podcasts, you had Kai Hurst Kai come Hurst, on for yeah. a chat. Mm-hmm. Isn't he a great guy? I had him on my show as well. Yeah, Just legend. blown away by a guy that can do three sports at the highest I level. Know, I know. We actually, when I, we trained together for a while, you know, we swam together and, uh, yeah, yeah, just Im- impressive to see the work that the capacity that that guy had. I mean, I'm sure oh. I'm sure he'd be a great triathlete, honestly. Like he- I know he said he started doing triathlons now. Yeah. Although he's he's a large boy, so he's got a frame to carry. Yeah, that's um, true too. You'd have to thin uh, out a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> on the on your podcast, have there been any that have just really stood out to you? I mean, you mentioned Popov was kind of a highlight. Has there been for your show? Has there been kind of ones that have really stood out for you that were, you know, memorable? Uh, yeah, look. Um, I mean, they're all memorable in a way, but, uh, you know, I've had I've had some moments where I had a really good conversation with Bob Bowman, who is Michael Phelps's coach, you know, from, from the time he was a young kid all the way through his career. And uh, I find people like that just interesting. And I, and I love the fact that Michael stayed with him the whole time. It's very rare very in, in rare. sport these days that mm-hmm. someone would raise someone from a kid all the way to be the greatest Olympian of all time. And so to me, that's fascinating to see that progression have the ups and downs that they had. So I'm just fascinated in, in stories like that. You know, Bob Bob might, might, may or may not be the greatest coach who ever lived. I don't know. But to have that experience is just so fascinating to me and there's so much to take away from that. And, and he's a great speaker and articulates really well, had great stories. So cer- certainly loved um, my interview with him. But, yeah, I, I try and take something away from everybody. I, everybody's got a story, you know. Every, everybody's got a story. Isn't it fascinating? The more you do this podcasting, I yeah. find myself – I'll be at the playground with my one- and three-year-old and there's a parent standing there. Mm-hmm. And just start having a conversation yeah. and it's almost like, and I leave the playground going, everybody's got a story. Yeah. Everybody's got a journey. Everybody's had something and exactly. it's, uh, and everybody's fascinating. I'm a bit like you. I think that's been one of the highlights of doing this show is getting to know people from different areas of the world. Like, you know, your life in Maruba and, and growing up in, in a, you know, that kind of a neighborhood. And I think it's, yeah. I just, and, and then to where you are now, yeah. you know what I mean? It's yeah. Like, yeah. No, it's incredible. Right. Yeah, I, I, I did interviewed a photographer the other day, and I thought, you know, not many people are going to connect with this. It's a photographer. She had an amazing story. And I'm like, yeah. well, she's been to nine Olympics, you know, um, summer, winter, and just uh, her passion and her understanding of her craft. It's like, yeah, everyone's got a story, and they're, they're all fascinating <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm right. I'm right there with you. Had any? Have you had any sort of massive bloopers or anything? I mean, it's. I feel like <laughs> these podcast things happen. Have you any, anything? I try not to get too show? controversial. I try and you know, I certainly I stay away from tabloid. I mean, I there's certainly parts of stories that I know of people that I'm like, I'm not even going to touch that. It's not it doesn't no. interest me, you know. So no, like no. other people have written about that. It's not. I, I don't care what party you went to or whatever. You know, it's like. Uh, well, the Australian swim team seem to have plenty of stories. Oh, listen, I've got to tell you, some of the interviews I've had with some of those guys, I could have gone a lot deeper. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> I, I, I just feel like every time, every sort of year or so, it's like some another one's made the media. But for yeah. people that don't know, Australian swimming is almost like our 
for Americans, baseball, NFL, our swimmers are put on a massive pedestal. We we expect the world from them. We expect gold medals. We expect them to be fantastic people and whatever. And, and uh, so when they do slip up, the media really does grab hold of it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I was I mean, lucky. I was part of this golden age, you know, from Kieran Perkins. You really were. Yeah, you, know, you really were. Kieran came on and kind of shifted. Kieran was the first millionaire swimmer in, in history. You know, he, he made a million dollars young, uh, you know, back in, I, th- I think, 92, 93, you know, yeah. and, and that yeah. shifted swimming completely. And all of a sudden, swimmers became important. Swimming became professional and, and they started becoming stars and making money, like you said, and then and being watched and revered and, and judged. And so... I was just part of that era and very lucky. You know, I traveled the world with Ian Thorpe and mm. Brand Hackett and Michael Klim and these guys that were making great money and being real celebrities. And I got to watch them, you know, in front of the camera and behind the camera and, and everything in between. So it was, it was very fascinating. Yeah, it's I, I learned a lot. I was very, very fortunate, very lucky. Mm. Um, but you're right. Swimming is one of those sports in Australia that is just put on a pedestal. It really is. Where, where do you hope to go with your your, your show? I mean, you sort of one year in, I guess now, and um, is it more of the same? Or I mean, there's so many great swimmers and swim coaches and exercise physiologists and, like you said, photographers. Is yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to explore the, the the sport, you know, for sure. I'd love to have. I'd love to have a studio and be doing it a little bit more professional. Like a lot of it. Uh, you and me both. <laughs> a lot of it is just on the road and I'm just like parked yeah. and, you know, it's like, all right, here we go. Let's shoot this thing. And um, <laughs> so I feel very amateur. Um, yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to make it uh, cleaner and a little mm-hmm. bit, a little bit more consumable, you know, but um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I've really enjoyed the space of, of high end top level swimming and talking to some of the best athletes. I still love it. Um, I'm trying to, I'm negotiating right now with Bruce Pearl, who is the basketball coach at Auburn university, one of the most famous basketball coaches mm. in the country to come on my show. And, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking at different areas of excellence as well. I, I think I'll branch out from time to time, but I do love the swimming space. It's my passion. And so I'll, pro- course, I'll probably yeah. stay in that, you know, good, good man. Well, you're doing a fantastic job. So, um, Mate, I think this is a pretty good place to to wrap it up for you. What, what's next for you, though? I did see. Are you doing something with uh, USC? Did I read? That? Uh, well, listen. You know, during COVID, uh, pool space was at a premium in LA, and so I decided to volunteer at USC to try and get some pool space for a couple of my athletes. I'm, uh, I'm working right now with a, a pop star that just came out to to start swimming again. His name's Cody Simpson, and. Um, you know, he, he's, he's very famous in, in the music scene. Yeah. And then he decided to, hey, I want to start swimming. And so I said, well, well, I don't really have a job right now in terms of coaching anyone. So why don't I help you? I'm pretty good at it. And so we started working together about seven months ago. I started working with him in L.A. And, um, yeah, pools were shutting down left and right. And, we, and so that's kind of why we're here in Orlando right now. We actually we're in an Airbnb right now. We're at a friend's pool because we have access out here in Orlando. We don't have any access in, in LA and um, we're out here spending a lot of money trying to just improve our craft. And he's actually um, going to compete tomorrow uh, in a trial. You know, I think this will be his second official trial and um, it's exciting. You know, this, there's a young Good kid who's coming Good back to the sport again. Yeah. And so um, yeah. yeah, it's pretty exciting. 
Sounds like a man of many talents. Many uh, talents, yeah. And so we're trying to get him ultimately to the the Paris Olympics. He doesn't necessarily want to make Tokyo in a few months. He's not he's not at that level yet. But he's getting closer. But his ultimate goal would be to make the Australian swim team for Paris in 2024. So that's what we're aiming mate, for. Well, he's reached out to the right guy to get him there. Yeah, I think so. so. Uh, <laughs> good man. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Well, well, thanks so much for your time, mate, and just sharing your journey and just so much knowledge. This was just Absolutely fantastic. And, uh, where, where, where can listeners follow you? Where, where, where do you post things? It's uh, Yeah, my um, podcast is called Inside with Brett Hawk, and it's on everywhere you can get it. I like to watch it because I do, I do put up a video. Um, we, mm-hmm. do, we do a Zoom call and record it. So I, I watch it on YouTube, but you can certainly get it on Apple Podcasts, you know, all, all the top podcasting sites. Mm-hmm. I have a producer that puts all that stuff up for me, which is nice. But uh, but I like to watch it on YouTube. I, uh, I like the interaction between the guests and see their face when they react. And um, so it's Inside with Brett Hawk on YouTube. Check it out. Perfect, mate. Well, this has been fantastic. And another shout out to Alf Pat for for connecting us too, mate. Because uh, yeah. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. It, uh, opened my eyes to the to the swimming world and and everything else, and uh, so much learning from you guys. So thanks everybody for listening. And you can find all the show notes and timestamps, links, and coupon codes at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks again, Brett. Thanks, Appreciate Brett. It, Appreciate it, mate. Thanks. All right. Stay on the line. Cheers. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.